I know how your week has been going or how it went, but uh, my week last week was uh, an interesting week. I had a call at uh, about 3 o'clock Tuesday afternoon, said my brother uh, took a fall from an 8-foot ladder and uh, hit his, the back of his head on the concrete and has been in unconsciousness since then. He is in ICU in a hospital uh, in the Houston area, and we have spent the last uh, three and a half days down in Houston with my family. You know, I didn't realize that uh, being with your family in a very small room for three and a half days would bring all the dysfunction out all at one time. Uh, some of you know what that, that's about. <laughs> but uh, my brother is a pastor in the greater Houston area, and his church is without him today because he's still in ICU. Thank you for praying for him. Uh, the good news is I didn't know he had a brain, but now I know that he does. That's the good news. You know, your little brother, there's always some sort of competition between big brother and little brother and all that. But uh, he's much bigger and stronger than I am. But he did take a, t a fall, and he is still very serious, though, in his condition. And I thank you for praying for us and praying for Rick and his wife, Dawn. And he has three children uh, who are not married. Um, and so be in prayer for them. One of them is trying out to be the kicker for the... Houston Texans and so he's having to be away from his dad today and focus on trying to beat out the kicker uh, for the NFL team called the Texans um, it's been interesting uh, to have your life changed in a fraction of a second with one phone call and uh, to be quite honest with you we didn't know if he was going to actually make it or not there for a while it was kind of a touch-and-go thing uh, he fell hard on the back of his skull fractured his skull in multiple places and it's the swelling of the brain that's having a hard time diminishing to the point where it is no longer swelling so it's still critical but i thank you for praying but one thing i really appreciate one of the many things one of the many things i really appreciate about my brother is his work ethic my brother is like a hoss i mean he is a hard working guy he is a bivocational pastor in a church in the greater Houston area. And so by being bivocational, he has to really juggle a whole bunch of things. And uh, he is a contractor, and he subcontracts and contracts on housing remodeling and all of those kinds of things. And so this is kind of, kind of set him back a little bit. But I've always admired his work ethic. He is a hard worker. And as I stood over him and looked at him in that state in the last three and a half days, I was reminded of many things. But one of the things I, and preparing for what we were doing today, I was reminded of how hardworking he is. And I thought about our message today about how hardworking many of us are in trying to please the Heavenly Father. And I ran across a really poor, a really bad joke. So I'm going to start off by being humorous, so it's okay to laugh in church. So turn to your neighbor and say, it's okay to laugh. And if you don't laugh at the pastor's joke, I'm going to poke you so that you will laugh. All right? Farmer Jack watched two men park their county truck on the side of the road. One man got out and dug a hole and then moved a few feet and to the left and dug another hole. The other man followed the first, filling each of the holes after his buddy had dug them up. The farmer called out to the two men, what is going on with all this digging, he inquired. Well, we work for the county, one of the men exclaimed. Anybody work for the county here? 
Anybody? I don't see any hand raised. Okay, I'm going to shake. I can see that, but one of you is digging and the other is filling up the hole as fast as you can. You're just wasting my tax dollars, he shouted. No, we're not, the worker insisted. Normally, there are three of us, me, Rodney, and Mike. I dig the hole, Rodney sticks in the tree, and Mike puts in the dirt. Yep, Mike piped up. And just because Rodney's sick doesn't mean that we shouldn't earn our keep now, does it? Some of you are going to figure it out. The guy who puts the tree there is sick and is not present. You know, we bring a work ethic to us, I think, sometimes, not only in our work, but also in our salvation. And the sad reality is that our work ethic is much like those two men who are missing their third partner. We do a lot of work in order to justify, to merit, to earn, or to deserve what we believe is our salvation. But in spite of all of our effort and all of our work ethic, we just never seem to measure up. Because you see, salvation is not by works, the Bible said, lest any one of us should boast. But it is basically a gift from God. It is by grace through faith in that we are saved. And yet we still want to bring a work ethic. Even though we know in our minds and our hearts and by what we've studied in the Word of God that works will not measure up to the standard of righteousness that God has placed before us, there's something within us that wants to earn our way, that wants to pay our dues, that that wants to make sure that we look in the mirror every morning and every night to know that we've done our very best, and we should. But that in and of itself, no matter how much discipline you and I seek to exercise and to implement in our daily struggle for righteousness, we will never measure up to the standard of righteousness that God has set in his law or the prophets. Many of us hear in the back of our minds this word of self-condemnation because there are sins and there are weaknesses that we have struggled with all of our lives. We just can't seem to overcome them. We can't seem to defeat them. And they haunt us as recently as this morning, reminding us of our frailties, of our insecurities, and of our sin, and screaming at us saying, you're not righteous enough. You haven't worked hard enough. And to top it off, maybe there's someone in your life, (coughs) excuse me, like the people that Jesus is addressing, some religious fanatic who has somehow redefined or reinterpreted the law and is seeking to then pressure you even more to a certain standard that God has not called you to live by. And you're feeling inadequate. You're feeling impotent. You're feeling powerless. You're feeling defeated. And these words from others, while maybe well-intended, and some of them are just simply darts of self-righteousness so that they can elevate themselves above you, they're, they're, they're these, these, these thoughts of self-condemnation to the point where many of us may be on the brink of either wearing this facade, this mask of hypocrisy, or just saying, what's the use? There are people that Jesus is addressing here in the Sermon on the Mount who have reached that point. The religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, have constantly been bombarding the people that attend on a regular basis and who read their blogs, so to speak, about the standard of righteousness. And they have inflicted this this guilt upon the people that 
to the point where they now are flocking to Jesus. And the people that are flocking to Jesus are flocking to him because they have pretty much gotten to the point where they're ready to just throw in the towel. They know that they have this inadequacy, this inability to live up to this, these traditions and these standards and these codes of ethics. There are hundreds of them that they are just not able to live up to. And they're, they're just defeated and they're dejected. And Christ now is coming to give them hope. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus now has just delivered the Beatitudes, he knows in the hearts of those that are seriously seeking to follow him as disciples and are listening to the content of his message that possibly there are many, if not most of those who are there, are severely spiritually defeated and dejected. And, and he, he doesn't want what he's just given to them in the Beatitudes to be another layer of imperfection and unattainability. And so it's not by accident then that Jesus then in this beautiful text instructs his disciples not only how to be and live righteously, but how to live righteous in a fallen world. For we live in a fallen world that is filled with fallen people. And some of the fallen people are people who have no desire for righteousness, primarily because they don't know the Father through the Son. But there are some who have no desire for righteousness because they see it as an elusive goal that is unattainable and they're living in defeat. And so they have just thrown in the towel and they're living unrighteously without any standards, without any morals, without any, any boundaries. Or maybe they're just living like many in this state of hypocrisy, claiming to be righteous when in down deep in their hearts, they look in a spiritual mirror and see a reflection of a heart that's, that's stained and tainted by unrighteousness. And so here we have these beautiful words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, not only to them, but to us, in which he's admonishing us with the standard of righteousness. What is that standard? Well, let's go to the text, and we're going to look at one verse today. One verse. And I want us to ask two questions. Question number one, what did Jesus not come to do? Jesus came to fulfill a purpose, but there was a purpose that he didn't come to fulfill. And we're going to ask the question as in regards to the purpose that Jesus came to fulfill by first of all asking, what did he not come to do? What does he not purpose to do? And it begins, I think, with the negative first and then gives us the positive because sometimes it's the good news versus the bad news. And somebody says, well, what you want first? I don't know about you, but I'd rather get the bad news over first, and then you give me the good news, right? Or would you rather have the good news first and then be let down by the bad news? But even though this may appear to be bad news, it's really good news. Both of these are good news. And he first tells us what he did not come to do. Notice in the text, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Do not think that I have come to abolish the prophets or the law. I have not come to abolish them. The word abolish means to destroy. It means to put to an end. It means to disregard. Jesus is saying, I did not come to abolish, to disregard, to cast aside, to spin off, to neglect, to deny the validity of the law or the prophets. I did not come to do that. 
Now, what would cause Jesus to make this very direct statement to a group of people who were there seeking information about what it meant to be his disciple? Well, you see, they had been inundated with scribes and Pharisees who, for the most part, if you look at the text, he said, had come to the conclusion, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. There were some who had a misconception about the teachings of Jesus. For up until this point, there have been several occasions in which Jesus has had a conflict. He's had a confrontation with these scribes and these Pharisees in regard to the interpretation of the law. And Jesus knows that they have misrepresented, they have misinterpreted the law. There's this misconception then on their part that Jesus has come to cast aside the law and to throw out the words of the prophets. And Jesus is saying, I didn't come to do that. You know, we have those still among us today who think that because now we're in the New Testament era that the Old Testament and what it commands us and instructs us to do actually has no weight and should carry no measure in the standard of righteousness by which we're to live by. And Jesus here is basically confronting that whole concept then and today by saying, no, the law and the prophets still have value and they still have the intent and the purpose that God had all along. So don't throw out your Old Testament. Don't disregard the prophets. Don't only read the New Testament. Read all of the book from cover to cover, from Genesis all the way through. What's the last book? Okay. Just see if you read your Bible. So I go, uh, what's the last book? Um, not only was there's a misconception, but there was a misrepresentation on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing. The misrepresentation is simply this. They have taken the law that God intended and for the purpose for which he gave it, and they have distorted it. They have corrupted it. They have made it say what God did not intend for it to say. They have now written down some regulations or what we might call some traditions. They have reinterpreted the law of God into traditions these traditions are sort of scaled-down commandments that have enabled them to not only live up to them, at least they think they have lived up to them, so they can then claim righteousness. For you see, they had a good work ethic too, and they wanted to abide by the commandments of the Lord, the law and the prophets. But they knew in their best effort they couldn't do that. So instead of recognizing their inability and their impotency to live up to those standards, they then take the law and they reinterpret it so that it can measure up now to the life standard that they have adopted, which is basically in conflict to the standard of God. We have that today. There's a young man who has grown up here in Wichita who wants the Bible to correspond with his alternate lifestyle, and he has reinterpreted, he has redefined the law and the commandments of God to justify his position and his right to his lifestyle. And it happens in, in many lives in the church today, not just about homosexuality, but about all kinds of other issues. And what they've done is they've, they've misinterpreted the intent of the law and the prophets and the reason for why God gave it to sort of justify their position and their lifestyle so they can then pat themselves on the back and say, okay, I'm living up to now the reinterpretation of the law, so therefore I am righteous. 
But not only was there a misconception and misrepresentation, but there was also a misrepresentation in that they were not living up to the letter of the law. They were actually living in disobedience and in defiance to the laws that God gave. And so Jesus, what he's doing here, it's interesting that his intent is now to go back to the original law and the prophecies that God gave and help them understand them as God intended them to be applied. Look at the text just very quickly. We're going to go through this very quickly. In chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, we're going to get there in the next couple of Sundays. But I just want to take a look at what it says here. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Where did they hear this? In church. They heard it in small groups. It was being passed down orally through traditions. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be, will be liable to judgment. Notice what Jesus said, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Skip down now to chapter 5, verse 43. He said, you have heard that it is said, what did they hear? From the scribes and the Pharisees, they heard it in church, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, this is what the intent of the law was, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What Jesus is doing here in this text is he intends now to follow the letter of the law and to take them back to the intention of what God meant when he gave it to his people. We see now in the next verse, in chapter 15 on your screen, beginning with verse 1, there's a conflict here over this tradition of washing of hands. How many of you are obsessed, obsessed with clean hands? Come on now. You, you go into the store and you go straight over when you get the cart and you get that, that stuff filled with good germ-killing stuff and you wipe it all down, right? Before you t get into the groceries, you know what I'm saying? How many of you have some of that really good hand-cleaning stuff in your car every time you put gas in it or every time you come back, you... Clean your hand. Anybody other than me? How many of you have some of that in your purse right now? And you're about to have lunch, and before you have lunch, you're going to make sure everybody at the table has taken that de-germ stuff and has wiped themselves down with it. So there's a conflict here in the text over the tradition of clean hands. And the clean hands here is not just for, you know, to be germ-free while you're eating, but there's a tradition here that the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to maintain. And notice what happens. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, any children here do not use this text to validate dirty hands while you're at the table. Okay, Jesus said we didn't have to wash our hands at the table. Do what your mom says, okay? But he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? God never intended for you to interpret the law and to enforce these traditions this way. There's the intent of the law that God originally meant when he gave it to his people. And you have twisted, you have misrepresented, you have distorted it. 
And so Jesus came now to define what the law intended to mean. He came to display the perfect performance of that law in the life that he would live as an example to his people. And he now is going to deliver true righteousness, which is not a righteousness from the outside so that others can see, but it's a righteousness that begins in the heart that then is reflective on the outside. And the Pharisees were getting the cart before the horse. They were more concerned about the external than the internal. And Jesus now is about to reverse this, this whole concept of external righteousness and completely disregard an internal righteousness, which was really the intent of the law and the, and, and, and the, the promises of the prophets. But let's take a look now at what Jesus did mean. Here's the second question. What did Jesus actually come to do? What is his purpose? Notice his words. He says, I have come to do what? To fulfill them. The them meaning the law and the prophecies. I have come to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am going to bring them to their ultimate intended purpose. I am going to bring them to their intended purpose. There is a purpose why God gave the law and the prophecies. They're not accidental. They're not just for fun. There's an intended purpose because God always intentionally acts. And when he leads his men to write down these valuable words from Moses all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation, there is an intended purpose for which God has in these writings. And God is saying here in this text through his son that Jesus is going to bring these these laws and these prophecies to their ultimate goal, to their intended purpose. Jesus is himself, not only the author, but he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophecies. What is the intended purpose of the law and the prophecies? Well, it's to reveal righteousness. And upon the revelation of righteousness is to help us realize our inability to live up to the righteous standards of God so that we would then look for a sacrifice that he gave in the Old Testament by which that sacrifice then would be the atonement of our sin before a holy and a righteous God who demands holiness and righteousness. So then after breaking those laws, we can be reconciled through faith in that sacrifice and have a right relationship with God. The ultimate purpose in which he's fulfilling this is simply this. Jesus is saying, I am going to fulfill the demands of the law and the prophecies because I'm going to die on a cross for sins that I did not commit, but sins that you committed so that through faith in my atoning work on the cross, you can be saved from your sin. The law and the prophecies from the very beginning always point to Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. Let's take a look at the prophecies. First of all, he came to fulfill the prophecies. The prophecies here begin with Genesis 3.15. Did you know that? The first prophecy in the Old Testament in regard to Jesus is found in the words that God addresses to Satan when he addressed sin between himself and Adam and Eve. For after addressing Adam and after addressing Eve, he turns to Satan and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. 
and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's saying from Adam and Eve, there's going to come a Messiah, a Savior, and he, being Jesus, is going to put an end to your, your influence. That's the first prophecy in regard to Jesus in Genesis chapter 3. We see again in Psalms 22. Most of us don't think of David as a, as a prophet. We think of him as a poet or as a musician, but he was a prophet. And the beautiful passage in Psalms 22 where you see God inspiring him to write this prophetic, beautiful text in regard to, to, to the Christ, to the Messiah, to his atoning death on the cross. He said in verse 14, the words, these basically are of Jesus. I am poured out like water and all my bones uh, like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, and a company of evildoers enriches me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What does he prophesy? The sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Christ came to fulfill this prophecy. Notice in Isaiah chapter 53, one of the most beautiful descriptions that I find in the Old Testament scriptures in regard to the, to the explanation of the significance of the, the death that Christ gave when he died on the cross for our sins against the Father. Notice in verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet he esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What happened to our sin? The Lord God laid on him our sin. He became the atoning sacrifice for our sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that... Before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. A beautiful, beautiful prophetic description of what Christ did for us in his atoning sacrifice and death on the cross. What did Jesus do in regard to those prophecies? He filled every single one of them. And aren't you glad? Notice the fulfillment of the provisions of the law. As we see the provisions of the law, we know that the law in the Old Testament, according to Moses, when a, there was a violation of the law, what, what was to happen? What was to happen? There would be a sacrifice. Upon a violation of the law, there would be a death. The death of a sacrificial animal, a goat or a lamb. And that goat or that lamb was presented by the one who had offended, who had disobeyed, who had sinned against God, and he would bring it then to the altar. He would then touch it, 
And it would be symbolically himself, and it would then be brought to the altar. It would have been, been slaughtered. It would have been sacrificed. The blood was then to be spilt for the atonement of the sin of the one who offered it. That was the requirement of the law. That's what happened every time someone sinned, especially on the day of atonement. They would make their way, their pilgrimage to the place of worship in Jerusalem, and they would offer sacrifices, sin offerings, so that they could be reconciled and live in a right relationship with God and could attain them the righteousness that the law required. But notice what happens in the New Testament in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, and Paul says this many times, but now. And up to this point in Romans 1, 2, and 3, he has described a human being as the most despicable, the most heinous sinner that has absolutely no hope apart from Christ. But now, this is what you were once like. This is who you once were, damned and doomed. But now, notice what he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they bear witness to the sacrifice of Jesus, to Christ himself, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And yet all of us are justified by his grace. How? As a gift, not something we work for, but as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by the blood to be received by faith. How does it receive? By faith. Jesus became our lamb. John, when he pointed to Jesus, he said, look, behold, the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And again, he pointed to Jesus as he was walking by and he said, behold, the lamb of God. And some of his disciples who later became disciples of Christ then followed him. John pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God, as the ultimate sacrifice to be offered on an altar called Calvary, where he would take upon himself our sin through faith and die in our place so that we then could be reconciled to God. That is amazing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, For our sake he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us, and he took our place. 1 Peter 2.21, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It's incredible, isn't it? I have an interesting closing illustration. In just a minute, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to use that last text in just a minute, so hang on if you would. Interesting that uh, I have a, a measure here, and it helps you measure things. And uh, there's a rule that says measure twice, cut once. Right? Why do we do that? Why do you measure twice and cut once? Mike, why do you do that, Mike? No, I don't want to make a mistake. And even though you measure twice and cut once, still a possibility of making a mistake. Although Mike built me a house that has no mistakes in it. 
Well, we'll, we'll keep that between us. But let's say that there's a measure for righteousness. There's a standard. And let's say that uh, we somehow think that we need to measure up to a certain standard of righteousness. And unless we measure up to that righteousness, there's no way in the world that we're going to have a, a be blessed by the Father as the Beatitudes described, and we're going to be able to enjoy the life that Christ intended for us to live. And so we come to church and we bring our, let's just say, we come to church every Sunday. <clears throat> just take a look around you. This is summertime. Not everybody's been coming every Sunday. But let's say you become disciplined enough and you work hard enough that you don't miss a Sunday. Remember we used to give pins to people that didn't miss in so many years? Well, we can do that today. Because the average church attender attends, attends twice a month, basically. Let's say you were able to discipline yourself and work hard enough, you never missed a Sunday for 50 years. We'll give you, an, we'll give you maybe an inch for that. Okay. Then let's say that um, you, you gave not only 10% of your income, because that's what the law requires, but you gave an extra 10% to all the greater things and all the offerings. And then you gave another 5 to 15% to maybe the community and other things at large. Let's say you gave away 90% of your total income to causes to the kingdom and learned to live on 10%. That's another inch. Let's say you were able to memorize almost all of the New Testament. It took you years, but you could quote it all by memory. That's another inch. Let's say you came to Life Group every Sunday for 50 straight years and you never missed. Let's give you another inch. Let's say you served on 40 different ministry teams in the last 50 years while you were a member of that church. We'll give you another inch. Let's say you went to all the mission trips that Brother Gale has for every summer for the last 50 years, and you participated and led many, 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 many hundreds of people to Christ. Okay, we'll give you another inch. Is there anything I'm leaving out? Let's say you lived a perfect witness at your workplace, and you never once said a cuss word or laughed at a crude, rude, inappropriate joke or never treated anyone unfairly and you were righteous in your dealings with your community and in your business and you paid your taxes on time. Ha ha ha. That's another inch. What else could we do? The point that I'm trying to make is, you know, in all of that, this is, this is what you've done. This is it. Seven inches. You know what God's requirement is? You know what his standard for righteousness is? How well did you do? Did you meet God's requirement? You missed it by how much? A lot more than that much. You missed it by a couple of miles. Why? Because all of your discipline and all of your effort and all of your obedience and all of that stuff that you did didn't add up. It was, it was only seven inches. 
Even if you were to die on a martyr, crucified like Simon Peter, upside down on a cross, and died a horrific death for your faith, I'll give you even three or four more inches. But that still didn't, does not measure up, does it? So how do you make it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The only standard by which you are measured by is Christ himself. You can't work hard enough. You can't do enough. You can't be disciplined enough. You can't give enough. You can't die enough in order to earn merit or deserve a righteousness worthy of salvation. It's only found through faith in Christ. Why? Because he and he alone is the standard that God used to make us acceptable to him. He was the only perfect the only perfect example of complete obedience to every law and every writing of the prophets. And he, in his perfection, because he had a divine nature, was able to rise above and live the perfect life so that he then could be that sacrificial lamb that God would offer on the altar of Calvary and he would then bear our sins. He would put our sin on himself, those who have placed faith and trust in him as our Savior, and he would then die in our place. Righteousness is only made possible in Christ alone. There's no other standard by which you're measured by. Let me say that again. There's no other standard by which you are to be measured by other than Christ alone. Well, wait a minute, that's going to give people a lot of license, isn't it? No. It's actually going to free us up from our own self-righteousness. Because I'm convinced that many of us who have lived this life for a long period of time have a tendency to be self-righteous, not Christ-righteous. And the only way that we can feel good about our unrighteousness is to point the fingers at others and condemn them for not living up to a standard that we ourselves cannot live up to. Because it's about the heart. And what we've been called to do, you know what faith is? Faith is simply resting in his righteousness. Just resting in what God has already provided through the sacrificial atoning work of Christ on the cross where he took upon himself my sin and your sin if we put our faith and trust in him as our Savior and Lord. And that is what we celebrate today.